0: you can really help us by rating reviewing and sharing nonfic pod every little helps to build our audience and that means we get to share fantastic nonfiction with people just like you it also helps us keep bringing you the greatest authors and the hottest reads and if you want to help even more you can back us on patreon search for
1: patreon NonFicPod, pod or see the link in our show notes if you're already backing us then thank
0: you Listen for your name in the credits. And if you're backing us at silver nib level or above, then please stand by for the extended cut of this episode and Shit I Wish I'd Known, in which this week's guest will tell you more about their writing and publishing experiences. Welcome to this episode of Nonfic Pod with Burn and Cod, and Cod has been chatting with Georgina Lawson. Georgina has got a fantastic memoir out called Raceless. As a memoirist, memoir seems to be so often about unveiling a mystery or a story to the reader, but it sounds very much from your interview that Georgina is investigating a mystery of her own.
1: Yeah, it was such a pleasure talking to Georgina and hearing about, as you mentioned, her mystery of her own family and her own upbringing and what it means to be a person of colour when your colour is kind of brushed over really.
0: I think people are really going to enjoy this and probably be quite astounded at the depths of mystery that families can actually live with. Yeah. So Georgie, please introduce Georgina Lawton. With pleasure, Bert.
1: Georgina Lawton is a journalist and speaker in her 20s. A former Guardian Weekend columnist, she also writes for a number of other publications such as The Independent, Stylist, Gal Dem, Travel and Leisure Vice, Time Out London, and more. She's also a broadcaster and host of the Audible podcast The Secrets in Us, which was released late last year. Her first book, Raceless, a family memoir exploring race, identity, and long-held secrets, will be out in the UK and the US by the time this podcast is aired. In this country, it's her publisher sphere's non-fiction title The Spring 2021. I asked Georgina how she found writing long-form as an author Compared to work as a journalist?
2: Yeah there's a lot that's different and there's a lot that I love a few things that I miss so I love I love the freedom of working on a long project and being able to really sort of luxuriate in your writing and take the time to sort of not bother with anyone else online or anyone really for a couple of months even your editor you can kind of switch them off and and just go off and write which is how I like to do it and then hand it all in so I've really really enjoyed that and I definitely want to do more books because I think My personality and my working style is suited to sort of, you know, all being locked away and then coming back and sort of discussing publicity and marketing. I'm very all or nothing as a person. So I like that. Um, But I definitely miss the sort of dopamine hits that you get when you put an article online on Twitter and people retweet it and you've got like a big response. And my friend pointed out, you know, books are really a long game. So you don't get that feedback that maybe a lot of online writers sort of crave. And, and get used to because when you do write stuff online, yeah, you just get instant, instant feedback. Not all of it is always good, but it's nice to kind of have a response. And with books, I think you do get responses from what I've heard, but it's it sort of trickled across, you know, many years. Whereas with an article, it's like, bam, everybody's responding to what you said online and you've got to sort of deal with that in a different way. But I kind of like that as well. <laughs> the attention seeker in me needs a bit of feedback. So. <laughs> Yeah, it's different. It's a
1: different, different So tell tell us about the article that you wrote before
2: Raceless became a full manuscript that went viral. Oh yeah. So I wrote about um my dad doing my hair actually. That was one that that did really well. But before that I wrote about growing up in a white family and sort of the discovery around why that was the case. Um finding out about my identity, finding out about my mum's affair, finding out um, about sort of this this hidden truth in our family and how that had impacted me. So I wrote that for The Guardian and that went really big, really quickly. It got sort of like, you know, 800,000 page views in a weekend, I remember them saying.
0: Whoa!
2: Like a lot, yeah, a lot, a lot, a lot and loads of shares. And it was just a bit overwhelming, to be honest, because I was like 20, how old was I? 25, 24, something like that. So it was quite overwhelming. I'd never really written anything that had such a big impact, especially about myself. So that was interesting, but it also led to publishers and agents and it led to a column in The Guardian for a little bit talking about identity and race, which is such an amazing opportunity to be given in your early 20s. Honestly, it opened so many doors. And yeah, that's how the book was born, because I got approached by I got approached, I think, by publishing houses saying you should write a book. But first you need to get an agent. And I was like, wow, okay, this is amazing. But I sort of didn't believe them because it was it was it felt it didn't feel real. It felt like it was too far away and too sort of a nebulous of a concept to, to do myself so I was like taking a few months to process the idea that people thought I should write a book and then I decided to sort of follow up on some of their agent recommendations and I got a fantastic agent at United shout out to Zoe Ross and um, yeah she helped me sort of start writing the proposal which was which was good so it was like a relatively easy transition I guess because I'd had that great platform in the Guardian and I'd had a lot of feedback from people after they have read my work online so it was it was I feel really lucky that it was quite easy for me to sort of hop from that to to getting an agent and getting publishers interested in me so not a very conventional route maybe but no but super exciting yeah, very would you would you
1: be able to introduce raceless and give yeah. our listeners a hint of or even more than a hint whatever you're in the mood for of goes <laughs> on
2: Yeah, sure. So yeah, as I said, it's about identity and race and family. Uh, It's part memoir, part, I guess, um, social analysis. And it looks at the subjectivity of race. And it follows my story as I reflect on growing up in a white family as a child and not really having answers as as to why that was. Um, Having a really loving family, an Irish mum, a white dad, a younger brother, who's also white, but none of us ever talking about this kind of hidden truth amongst that which was that we we look different or my family looked the same but I didn't look like everybody else so that was definitely a a large feature of my childhood and I reflect on that and then I start the book off by reflecting on my parents decisions and really going into why I took DNA tests which was was something I did in 2015 when my dad who raised me got really sick Um, and that was the sort of catalyst for beginning to dive into these these uh, issues around identity and once my dad passed away I I gave myself permission to process DNA test results between him and between myself and found out that he wasn't my biological dad and then went on this big sort of journey of discovery went and lived abroad in lots of different black communities sort of playing catch up to some of the things with some of the things that I felt I'd missed out on so I go and do that and then I interview other people sort of along the way whose identities had been misattributed or they'd taken DNA tests and they would found out something that was also a shock and I also look at the DNA testing industry on the way and, and sort of repiece my my relationship with my mum back together. That's a lot the book as well. There is so much to talk about with
1: so it's 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 incredible, the breadth of subjects. That, that you flow between in the narrative. Mm. You've, got, you've got the side of you as a traveller, you've got the side of you investigating what it means to be black, what it means to be mixed race, what it means to have your race ignored. Mm. And you introduce the... Well, not introduced. I was introduced to the term transracialism because mm-hmm. I hadn't heard of that before. All right. um, how how would you summarise transracialism for people who don't know about it yet?
2: Yeah, I think it's a great question because for people who do know about it, a lot of people of colour would would have come across the word potentially when um, that lady from the US, who I guess we should name Rachel or she... She was the one who controversially decided that she wanted to wake up, be black, adopt a black identity. And she called herself transracial because of that. And a lot of people of colour at the time were were outraged, rightly so, because that word is also used in adoption circles, or it was used in adoption circles to describe families a lot like mine, whereby a child, usually black or brown, is raised by white caregivers. And that's a transracial family when you're raised by people who are just of a different cultural or ethnic background to you and um, in writing Raceless, I realised I had pretty much a transracial upbringing without ever knowing that and knowing what that word meant. And then in 2016, with the Rachel Dolezal sort of controversy, I, I saw that word lose its meaning and get misappropriated to something that it doesn't really represent. So I know a lot of adoptees that would use that word and it's not particularly controversial, but it's, yeah, people are trying to, we're trying to reclaim it, I guess.
1: Is that one of, what was your main aims with writing the book? Was that one of them to kind of broadcast what transracialism
2: really is you know what were your aims in setting out to write raceless um I guess it's the book I, I wish I'd read when I struggled with my identity and it's it's for anybody that's ever felt minoritized not just in a, in a white society but perhaps in a white family or in a loving relationship with people of a different background to them because I always say the way our society is changing and the way our families becoming more mixed and the way you know we're having relationships with people of different backgrounds to us it's going to become more and more important to have these conversations about discrimination and privilege and difference whilst keeping our our affection and our love for each other really intact. Because, you know, I do love my family and they've done so much for me. And I had an amazing upbringing, but just when it came to talking about race, it was completely off limits and it really did us a lot of damage, I think. So it's for anybody, yeah, that that's that's in a similar position or anyone that's got family and friends of different backgrounds to them and, and needs to have those Those discussions, and we need to have those nuanced discussions in our most interpersonal relationships. I think
1: Mm. I found it very interesting reading through the book that that you are so open, like refreshingly open, about your conversations with your family and and your relationship with your mum. And I imagine maybe wrongly that being difficult to write. How, how was it to write about these things, about intimate details about your mother's relationships and your relationship to her?
2: Yeah, it was difficult, really difficult. I think when I started off and I started writing in The Guardian, it was more difficult because I mean my mum were at a different point in our relationship. She found it so hard to sort of have herself and her past exposed online because she hadn't really come to peace with it herself. So that was really hard at the start. Um, But as I wrote more and as we went to therapy more together, I really saw her change and become more of an open book and become more reflective and more able to have these conversations about race as I was also starting to let go of a lot of anger and really see my mum and my dad as people and not just parents, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? So I wish my dad was still here because he would have seen the journey that we've gone on together and I think he would have been there with us. But yeah, therapy was really, really fantastic for the two of us in mending our relationship and and you know now my mum's so open and she's so able to talk about things I've interviewed her for the podcast and a couple of years ago I never would have thought I would have been able to do that so it's it's really nice to see us both change and come a little bit closer as a result of all this.
1: Yeah and I love those therapy scenes that you were writing because they were hard to write. <laughs> they were I I found it very relatable and also just yeah it's so revealing and
2: how do you feel about putting yourself out on the page like that yeah I don't mind about writing about myself it was it was doing my family justice that I was really concerned about at the beginning like I don't mind exposing myself I feel like I've done it online and like I said you get more of an instant set of feedback so I'm used to sort of all those comments good and bad but mostly they've been really lovely from people that have you know, connected with something I've said. But of course you do get, you know, the odd weirdo and it doesn't bother me too much. Like it's sad, but I've developed a thick skin and I'm I'm quite an open book anyway. So I'm, I'm fine with all that. But it was more writing about my family at the start of the process. I, I didn't want to sort of do my dad's memory, any kind of dishonor, I guess. don't want to bring any sort of dishonor to his memory. And even his family, my grandparents that are still around, you know, like they've always accepted me as their own. And I often think what was it like for them when their son brought home a black baby and nobody spoke about it. Like no one I had to speak to my grandparents and I put that in the book, but they'd never, they'd never spoken to their son about it and he'd never spoken to them about it. So it's just this silence that had gone on for generations and I was just at the heart of it and I had a lot of love from everybody, but I picked up on that silence growing up and it had an impact on our, on our closeness, I guess. So yeah, I wanted to write about that, but also not ostracize myself, even though that was never a thing from my family. I never got that impression. It was just always a worry of mine knowing now, okay, I'm definitely not related to my dad and my dad's side of the family. What if I write something and then they are offended or they, they don't want to accept me, even though they've never given me that impression. I was just still a big worry. So yeah, I hope that they they like the book as well. And I hope that it will sort of open up more conversations in the future with us.
1: Have you had any feedback from your family on reading the book yet?
2: Yeah, my mum my really liked it. She's really happy with it. And she, she liked how I guess I broadened the story out and I interviewed other people that had gone through similar things and and I think that offered sort of her a little bit of protection as well because it wasn't just all about us it was about other people and I think she realised okay what's gone on isn't the end of the world because it's happened to some others as well and it's it's more common than you think these kind of themes of shame and guilt around around sort of children whose whose parentage isn't discussed so I I think she realised that that that's definitely something that she's got in common with other people. And I think before she felt quite alone with it. Mm. So it was yeah. nice to um yeah, nice to get her feedback.
1: Yeah, you talk about because your book's quite referential about the process of writing the book at various points. It's <laughs> <Yeah>. like meta. <laughs> book about yeah, meta, book about book, book about podcast. I, I find it all really fascinating. Book about freelancing as well, which mm. is um, you know, something you don't hear lots about, but mm. how Tiring and tedious, and, yeah, and the little, <laughs> all the little
2: tricks that you pull as a freelance writer, as well. I was trying to sort of give give um, an honest account of, of how I was able to sort of, you know, that like, wangle a press trip here and there. And it's all kind of <laughs> hustle, isn't it, when you're starting out as a freelancer? So, <laughs> absolutely. And, and one of the
1: things um, you mentioned in the book was about people, parents coming to you and asking for your advice on how to raise a child who's a different colour to them.
0: Mm.
1: How do you feel about having that responsibility?
2: Do you feel like you have that responsibility? Oh, God, yeah, it's a weird one, because I said in the book, I was like, I've never, I mean, I've got a dog now, that's really, you know, super responsible for me. But before that, I'd let a lot of houseplants die in my care. I'd never been responsible really for anything other than, you know, like a cactus. So I find it odd when people ask me for parenting, because I'm not a parent. So I think they'd be best placed, you know, reaching out to other other mixed families who've already gone through that experience because I can only write from my perspective as a child and as the person that's had to do all the digging to get to the point of sort of self-actualisation. It's a different process. So I try and get back to everyone on emails, but I, I don't feel responsible for people's family scenarios. But I have had to give a bit of advice out, you know, on email when people who write to me say, I've just taken a DNA test and I've discovered X, Y, Z. We've definitely had sort of heartfelt emails and phone calls, but it's more for people that are in my situation. I'm loath to give parenting advice, like that scares me slightly. <laughs> Are you expecting to have uh, more, I expect
1: you will, like the amount of publicity that racist seems to be getting so far in the UK and the US? Do you worry sometimes that you might be flooded with people trying to reach out to you and get your advice?
2: Yeah, I, do, I definitely do worry. I remember being in The Guardian at one point and, you know, I was getting weekly emails and messages to my Facebook page, to Instagram, on Twitter. It was, you know, like a few a week actually at one point. And most of them were just saying, you know, I resonated with something you've written but a lot of them were asking for advice and I guess yeah it does worry me slightly I haven't got a website yet maybe that's why because I don't want (laughs) to open the floodgates further like I'm happy to definitely be this reference point for people's stories but yeah there's a limit isn't there because it also takes it out on you and you have to keep reliving it yourself and obviously what's worked for me might not work for other people and not everybody can afford therapy or not everybody can afford to you know up sticks and leave and get some space and travel like that was just something that I managed to do was obviously a massive privilege so yeah it does worry me slightly because not it's not a one sort of fits all one size fits all kind of advice line for this it's like very different for each person
1: (laughs) I wonder if there's anywhere you can think of right now like any places that people could go to to kind of funnel some of those people to specialists
2: yeah I know like on DNA websites they've got a lot of Sort of signposting now. They never used to, and I've written about that. They never used to have kind of like what to do if you get unexpected results. It just used to be like tough luck, basically. So they've they've started to signpost a bit more. Um, And there's also actually a lot of Facebook groups, and I've I've been a member of a couple of them, and they're sort of called NPE groups, which stands for Not Parent Expected. Um, And there's another one called like DNA Surprises Group. So that's really, really useful because people actually go on there regularly and post whatever's just happened to them via DNA testing. And there's a whole community of support there, and there's a lot of people helping you decipher DNA test results or kind of offering advice as to as to what the issue is. Um, so I've never posted on there, but I'm a member of a couple, and yeah, I think it's quite a nice community quite niche, but it's growing all the time.
1: Yeah, well, you say that, but you you did meet other people who'd had similar experiences to you, and um, was it how did it feel to find them?
2: Yeah, it was amazing. I remember meeting one guy when I was interviewing, uh, when I was writing the book in Brixton and he'd contacted me ages ago and I'd written in The Guardian and he'd grown up as the only mixed race person in his town, in Brecon and Wales. And his mum had sort of overlooked his race as a way of kind of accepting it because his, his biological father had walked out on them. So his race wasn't acknowledged. And then he grew up with sort of that feeling of isolation around being the only black person in his family. But then really strangely, he got the skin condition vitiligo and he started to physically change from from black to white. So his mindset is still kind of within the black body that he once inhabited, but now he looks like a white man. So he's sort of transitioned mentally, whilst physically he's also changed. So I I, I really sort of connected with him in many ways because our stories were so similar, but his was so much more of an extreme version of my own, I guess, when it comes to. looking at how subjective race is or what it really means to be black or white because he'd he'd suffered sort of the psychological transition but also the physical one which was something that I'd never come across before so I spoke to him for the book and we met up and it was really great to have all these conversations and we'd grown up in very different eras in different parts of the the UK but there was a lot to discuss and it was really lovely to connect with somebody that could resonate with some of the the themes that I'd, I'd written about.
1: Was there were there any interviews or people that you met along the way that you really really wanted to include and weren't able to in the final cut?
2: Yeah, there was there were loads. There was another guy whose 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 race had been completely overlooked by his family, and he'd been told he was white, but he always looked kind of, I guess, South Asian, um, and it had really impacted his relationships with his family because they were still just not acknowledging why he was the only person that looked like him in in his community. And he was saying to me, yeah, I think my mum's had an affair, but I'm not really sure. We just don't really talk about it. And I was kind of encouraging him down the phone to, to start these conversations. And I said, well, you don't want to leave it too late because I've never really got to speak about this with my dad. I know it's really hard, but do you reckon it would be worth it? And he was like, yeah, no, it, I, I would like to. But and to this day, I don't think he's ever sort of broke the subject. And there was a lot of stories like that where people were kind of on the cusp of doing something. And I I'd kind of like sparked something in their mind. But then they hadn't gone through with it. And because of that, I also couldn't really ethically write about their story, you know, if they only had these suspicions or if they were only kind of half dedicated to getting to the bottom of things because they knew that something wasn't quite right, but they just weren't able to go all the way because it's really, really scary. And there's these fears that you're going to get isolated from the people that you've known for your whole life or there's, you know, loads of different things going on. So there were a lot of stories like that where people reach out to me, but they hadn't sort of completed the process and I was this kind of intermediary sort of boundary between the two two parts of their lives so that was really interesting but also like you know quite sad as well
1: mm.
2: but hearing you speak about this I wonder
1: if you think that there's something especially British about the way that your parents reacted mm. to your skin color what have yeah. you thought much I'm
2: sure you must have thought loads about that what stupid thing for me to say what do you think about that yeah loads um, also, my mum's Irish and, you know, Irish people are very, very adept at putting a smile on their face, plastering over the pain with another pint, making a laugh and a joke about it. And it's like British stoicism, like sort of 3.0, because it's, it's got so much more humour to it. And it's because of that, it's so much harder to crack. So my mum was was that ilk. And then my dad was very British and you know, had a bit of a rebellious streak, grew up as a, as a sort of, you know, boarding school kid and then turned into a punk in the 80s. And I think taking me on as his, on as his own was his way of kind of just doing something a little bit unorthodox because he was a little bit unorthodox. But two of them together, they just didn't talk about their feelings that much. Like I'm the sort of overflowing bubble of emotion in our family. My, my parents just aren't that emotional and my brother's not really either. And I definitely think it really speaks to the way that in this country, we try to overlook discussions about race as a way of accepting it, because we think that if we go into that category, into that territory, then somehow we're going to be accused of being racist. So it's best, best not to say anything at all, um, or somehow it's going to rock the boat. So it's best not to, to even go there. And I think things are definitely changing. But for maybe my parents' generation, I feel like that was more of a common theme. And I think for older people in the UK it's still a little bit like, oh, I don't know what to say. Like, can I describe someone as black or can I ask these questions or shall we even discuss it? But I think it's really important to discuss it so we all know where we stand and we can all feel, you know, fully, fully seen and fully comfortable around each other. There's nothing wrong with having those discussions about about race and privilege. But it it yeah, it worries a lot of people, I think. And it certainly worried My parents and they'd never discussed it between themselves and I think they were worried they were going to lose each other worried that the family was split up and I understand that now having you know done a lot of research into it into why the silence stayed where it was for so long yeah (laughs) I hope that answers your question
0: (laughs) did you enjoy hearing Georgina Lawton talking about raceless you want to hear the second part of this interview then why not sign up to be one of our patreon supporters and help non-fic pod continue silver nib level members and above can get special access to a bonus interview for this episode it's called shit i wish i'd known in which our authors share the expert knowledge they've gained so far do you want a flavor of what you'll get if you sign up well, here's Georgina Lawton saying...
2: I can't tell you how rocky it was. Like, everything went wrong that could go wrong.
0: And here's her saying... I don't know what it was, Georgie. I can't... Describe- Visit patreon.com forward slash to hear the whole thing, to support our show and to get deeper into the secrets of the pros. And if you're one of our first 100 members, you'll even be rewarded with some dazzling non merch. Hashtag we love stickers. Our guest this week was Georgina Lawton. You can find Georgina on Twitter at Georgina Lawton and on Instagram at Georgina Lawton Writer. Her first book, Raceless, is now out with Sphere. And now Georgie and I are going to compare notes on what we've been reading in non-fiction this week. Oh, what am I reading? Actually, okay, so
1: as we are embarking on this exciting non-fic project, I've been sent a few books by the people who publish my book. And one of those was... Your book, Georgie, what is its name? Oh, yes, sorry. I'm still not very good at this, am I? We swim to the shark, overcoming fear one fish at a time. Wink. But yes, I was sent Diary of an MP's wife by, gosh, what's her name? Sasha Swire. So she is Hugo Swire, MP's spouse. And it's this thick tome about observing what was going on with the Cameron-Clegg coalition and the subsequent Conservative government. And I'm finding it quite challenging, Emma. I, I'm sure Sasha Swart is a lovely person, but it's just making me extremely jealous and a, quite irritated, actually, um, because <laughs> because she's, she's got so much money, Bern. She's got so much money. And, and she, it's like little chapters about their cottage in the countryside and their beehives and their honey. And and i and i very much believe that there is a place you know that it is important that we hear those stories but also you know being that lowly unpaid person who has to work in multiple other jobs in
0: order to write creatively i'm just a bit you know green Uh, I'm thinking that, that Sasha Swire's journey into nonfiction is possibly not the same as your average memoirist. But as you say, it's important that we represent a diversity of voices, including the people with the summer cottages in the Cotswolds. This is why I never, ever read the property pages of The Evening Standard. It's just the, the class envy is too much. I can't. Yeah.
1: Oh, she's she's just been at a party with Evgeny Lebedev of The Evening Standard, actually. Mr. Two Beards, as they call him in private eye. And it's just another world. Absolutely. It's how the other half live, really. Except, as my partner pointed out, it's not the other half, is it? It's the other 0.5%. And if you're feeling a bit poor, it's quite hard to be reading that somebody just texts Downing Street when their dad doesn't get given a peerage and gets a bit cross
0: about it. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) See, that's interesting. Because I'm reading something about the other 0.5% or maybe 0.05%. Daniel Smith's Love Letters of Kings and Queens, and Dan will be on the series later. He has dug through the archives of amazing letters between... Uh, heads of state not just British kings and queens and uh, Napoleon pops up in there it's oh it's brilliant realizing that it doesn't matter how many titles you have and whether or not you're a Habsburg that you know you can still end up feeling a bit ghosted by your other half or having a embarrassing conscious uncoupling moment so it's making me realize that you know wealth may have its privileges but it doesn't insulate you from either heartbreak or blue balls in the case of Napoleon it's a great read and uh, really looking forward to chatting with Dan about the love letters of kings queens and also emperors but I guess they didn't have ring for that on the cover yeah it's quite a long word isn't it so yeah join us join us for insights from the rich and famous dot 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 is it Dan next actually it is Dan it is Dan oh brilliant so yeah, if we had a choice between Sasha Sasha's and the thirsty, <laughs> why are you ghosting me messages of kings and queens, I think next week we're going to go and find out about the heartbreak and the hilarity of courting with a crown. What do you reckon, Georgie? Yeah, sorry, Sasha. Yeah, she's not going to lack for coverage. So we'll speak to you in a fortnight and find out exactly what it is like dating while royal. Nice. Adios. Adios. Adiós mio. <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of Nonfic Pod with burn and Cod. Nonfic Pod is brought to you by Beatrice Bazell, Emma Byrne, Georgie Cod, and Mike Wire. And thank you so much to all of our patrons, David Corney, Mike Wire, Alessandra Coyne, Nicola Myrams, Claire, and Alexander. You really helped keep this show going. If you want to know how to join them, Take a look at patreon.com forward slash pod Until next time! That is a weird noise. Is that from my end? Sounds like someone's fucking tap dancing. That is weird. Oh, weird. I can hear motorbike.
1: Tap dancing motorbike?
0: You can really help us by rating, reviewing and sharing Non-FicPod. Every little helps to build our audience and that means we get to share fantastic non-fiction with more people just like you. And it helps us to keep bringing you the greatest authors and the hottest reads.